I have looked forward to this evening for a number of weeks, and I consider it quite a privilege to be here with you tonight. Several months ago, when I had finished the manuscript for the book, The Pursuit of Holiness, and it had gone to the editors, I received a call one day from the marketing department of NAV Press with this question, who did you write the book to? That was a very interesting question and one that I had not really specifically thought of. I'd had a general idea in my mind, but as I thought about it, I concluded that actually I wrote the book to myself. And that is the spirit that I come to you tonight in. I come not as one who would speak to you on holiness and how I've attained it, but rather this is what the scripture tells us and let's pursue it together. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, the Apostle Peter says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because... I am holy. All of you ladies, I am sure I can speak this assuredly, all of you ladies in your closet at home have at least one very special dress, either a formal or a long dress, or some kind that you have reserved for very special occasions. Now, you would not think of putting on that dress to go out and work in your flower garden or to wax your kitchen floor, or even if you are a working wife or a working single lady, to wear it to your job here in town. Because you have reserved that dress for very special occasions. You have separated it from the ordinary things of life that would defile that dress and keep it from being just right when you need it. You have separated it from defilement, and you have set it apart for very special occasions. Now, we might think of holiness this way, because actually the basic meaning of the word holy is separated from sin and set apart to God. If we think of it as a koan, these would be the two sides of the koan, One, we are separated from sin, and the other, set apart to God. I think the life of Jesus illustrates this very well for us when, in one passage of Scripture, it says that Jesus was without sin. He was separated from sin. Then in another passage in the Gospels, Jesus at one time said these words, I always do those things that please my Heavenly Father. Not only was Jesus separated from sin, but his life was set apart, dedicated completely to doing the will of God. And both of these are necessary for holiness. For holiness is not just something negative. It's not just something we don't do. But as one writer has put it, holiness is thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. And this is what Peter means here in this passage when he says, 
as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you once lived in ignorance, before you were a Christian. You were living in evil desires, in sin. And Peter says, don't live like this anymore. But as God is holy, so be you holy in all your conduct. I'd like to draw your attention to the fact here that he says to be holy in all your conduct. Every thought, every word, every action is to be governed and regulated by that standard, to be holy in all of our conduct. A couple of weeks ago, our family was over in a city on the western slope, and uh, my wife was sitting in a Sunday school class. I happened to be someplace else in the church that morning. But she was sitting in a Sunday school class, and the teacher of that class was referring to the fact that the night before, he and a number of the other people in the class had been to a basketball game, and I guess this was a rather important game for that high school. And as so often happens in an important game, some of the referees' calls were not just exactly to the liking of the hometown fans. And so there was a great deal of uh, yelling at the referee and criticizing, and this man was observing how he was right in there, yelling and criticizing the referee. And all of a sudden, it occurred to him, I wonder if the people around me know I'm a Christian. Now, maybe you've never thought about being holy at a basketball game. But Peter says to be holy in all you do. And this man suddenly realized that he had a responsibility to God to be holy in all that he did. And that included his attitude and his actions with respect to that referee. Everything we do is to be permeated, is to be governed and regulated by this command to be holy in all that we do. Now, the standard of holiness, as we see here in this passage, is to be holy as God is holy. Because he who called you is holy, so be ye holy in all your conduct. To be holy, then, is to be conformed to the character of God. God is absolutely holy. There is not the slightest taint of sin about God. Now this is a, you know, a self-evident truth, but we need to let this grip our hearts that there is no sin, there is no taint whatsoever of sin about God, and then God says, be holy as I am holy. We're called to be like God, not in his absolute essence, but in his moral character, we're called to be holy. God cannot call us to anything less than this. Now, we Christians, for so many years, have had sort of a defeatist attitude. We've let people come along and tell us it's not possible. And that's why I've chosen this particular topic tonight. God has made it possible. Now, when we begin to think about the holiness of God, 
when we begin to see him in his absolute purity, his, his infinite absence of any sin at all in his life, and then we look at ourselves and we say, this is the standard that God is calling me to. And I think when we do that, we respond with the words of the Apostle Paul when he used these words in another context, but nevertheless very applicable to this situation. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is equal to such a task to be holy as God is holy? And tonight, I stand before you and I say categorically on the basis of the word of God, you are. God has made it possible for you and me to pursue holiness as a way of life. Now let me hasten to add, I am not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about the point where you arrive so that you never sin anymore. But I'm saying to us tonight, it is not necessary for we Christians to go about with a defeatist attitude and say, I cannot experience victory over sin in my life. But whatever that besetting sin, whatever that unworthy habit, whatever that attitude that is bothering you and is keeping you from enjoying the Christian life to its fullest, you can overcome that. God has made it possible. Now, you may be saying, well, show me. And tonight, I'd like to do that to show you from the word of God that God has made it possible. Let's start, first of all, with the Apostle Peter, since we have been reading from Peter. In the second epistle from Peter, he said these words in the first chapter, verse 3, that God in his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has given us everything we need. You say, I don't have the strength to live the Christian life. God says, I've given you everything you need. Does this mean that there is no effort on our part? No, it means that God has provided for us. He has given us the ability to work this out in our own Christian lives. In fact, just a couple of verses later, after Peter says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and he proceeds to give a list of seven characteristics of the Christian that should be true in our lives. Because God has given us everything we need, Peter says, you make every effort to work this out. Satan has always tried to confuse us in this area of holiness. For many years in the church, back up until the time of the Reformation under Martin Luther and men of that caliber, the approach to holiness was that you isolated yourself from the world. And then you went through 
rigorous mortification of the body. You beat the body and you tried to subdue it. And you went through all kinds of things like this. The problem with this is they were doing this in their own strength. And they were doing this not from a position of grace, but to attain grace. Now, my friends, this hasn't changed all this much. In fact, I have a friend who spent 17 years in a religious order trying to earn grace that he might enter the kingdom of heaven, trying to make himself holy so that he would be acceptable to God. But the good news of the gospel is that we are accepted through the merit of Jesus Christ if we have put our faith in him. And tonight, all that I would say about pursuing holiness and the fact that God has made it possible, I want to be very clear that we're building on the base that Jesus Christ is our Savior. We do not pursue holiness to be accepted with God, but we pursue holiness because we are accepted with him through his Son, Jesus Christ. Then let's turn to uh, Paul. In the fourth chapter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now get those words, I can do. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God has made it possible. The Apostle Paul said, whatever circumstance I find myself in, God has made it possible for me to respond to that circumstance in a positive way. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Christian should never say, I can't. But the biblical attitude is, I can through Jesus Christ. But you say to me, but Paul was a very special case. He was an apostle. He was a super saint. But what about me? I'm just an ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday Christian. Well, in that same book of Philippians, where Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, He also said these words in the second chapter, in verses 12 and 13, if you're following in your Bibles. But he said to the Philippians, work out your own salvation. Now, he did not say work for your salvation, but work out your salvation. That is, bring it to its consummation. Work out your salvation, for God is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is at work in you. You work out your salvation. You work out a life of holiness. And you do this in the confidence that as you work it out, God is at work in you. I once heard a minister illustrate that passage with uh, the matter of power steering that some of us have in our automobiles. He said, you turn the wheel, the steering wheel, and down under the hood, there is a powerful hydraulic cylinder that comes into play, and it turns the wheels. And so you can sit there, and with just one finger, 
You can guide your car, and you can even turn corners with just one finger. Why? Because you have power steering. But he said, you have to start it by turning that steering wheel. And he said, this is what Paul is saying to us. You work out your salvation because as you pursue holiness, as you seek to obey God, the power of the Holy Spirit comes to play in our lives and enables us. God has made it possible. Now, how does God make it possible? I ask tonight that our scripture reading be from Romans, the sixth chapter. And I'd like to just direct our attention to that for a few moments. Because this passage lays the foundation for how God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness. But there's another reason why I want us to consider this tonight, and that is because there have been many wrong conclusions drawn from this passage. Since the passage was read to us, verses 8 through 12, I'm going to just review for us verse 11. In the same way, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul has been talking about the fact that Jesus Christ died to sin and now is alive to God, and he says, in the same way, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, it's important if we benefit from chapter uh, chapter 6 here, and particularly verse 11, which is sort of the key verse in this passage, it's important that we have an accurate understanding of what Paul meant when he used this expression, we died to sin, or we're to consider ourselves dead to sin. For there are some erroneous views. There are some views which tend to make Paul say more or to mean more than he actually meant. For example, there is a view that when Paul says that we are dead to sin, that we're dead to the power and the love and the influence of sin so that we no longer sin. And the illustration is used of a dead corpse lying here, and you can go up and you can slap that corpse or you can kick it, and there will be no response. And it said, you can't hurt a dead man. And the conclusion is drawn that for a Christian who is dead to sin, the temptation can come up and can, so to speak, kick that dead corpse, that Christian, and he will not respond because he has died to sin. Now, there's only one problem with that. It's not true. You and I can verify that from our own experience. Every day, every hour, we're faced with temptation, and in many of these times we respond to it. We are not dead to sin in the way that sin can no longer influence us. We're not dead to sin in the sense that we no longer love sin. There are some sins we do love, else we wouldn't do them. And then someone else has come along and said, well, that obviously isn't true. 
that we're absolutely dead to sin. But what Paul meant was that we are positionally dead to sin. That is, we're dead to sin in Christ. And if we just count on this fact, and the word used is reckon, which comes from our old King James Bibles, if we just reckon on the fact that we're dead to sin, and if we can somehow work up our faith and really believe this in spite of the evidence to the contrary, then we will in fact experience this and we will be like this corpse. And my friends, there are a number of books, and I hesitate to speak in a negative vein, but there are a number of books in circulation in the evangelical community that would teach us this. And I want to tell you tonight, I have been down that road, and that's not true either. And I can speak from first-hand experience. Well, what does Paul mean? That we're dead to sin. If we look across the page, at least in my Bible, to chapter 5, verse 21, we find these words, So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul here is speaking of two kingdoms the reign of sin, and the reign of grace. And he is telling us that Jesus Christ voluntarily came into this reign, this realm of sin, where we lived, where we were born, where we were slaves. He voluntarily came into this realm of sin, and he so identified himself with our sin that he, so to speak, came under its reign not in a moral sense, like we are. We say that in a sense because he voluntarily identified himself with our sin. He took upon himself our sin. And then he died, and he paid the penalty for that sin. And he released us from the guilt of sin. And he himself no longer is in this realm, this kingdom of sin. And Paul says here, particularly in verse 4 of this chapter, that when Christ died, we were so united with him that we died with him, and we are no longer in this realm of sin. And sin no longer reigns over us in the sense that we're still in its kingdom. We're now in the kingdom of God. Colossians 1.13 says that God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And Paul is talking about two different kingdoms here. And he says you're dead to the kingdom of sin. You've been removed from it. And you're now in the kingdom of God and life and grace. Now this does not mean that we are dead to sin's ability to influence us, but simply that we're dead to its absolute dominion. And tonight, I have good news for you. If you are a Christian, you are dead to sin in that sense, to its absolute dominion. The very fact that you recognize sin as sin proves that you're out of 
the absolute dominion and bondage of sin because the shackles of sin which bind us is blindness, spiritual blindness. And the very fact that you no longer have that blindness, that you recognize that sin grieves the heart of God, that you desire to live a more righteous, a more holy life, proves that you are dead to sin. And so don't go around hoping to be dead to sin or trying to make yourself dead to sin or even trying to, by faith, reckon yourself dead to sin. You are to reckon, you are to count on the fact that you are dead to sin. But that means that you have been delivered from the absolute bondage of sin. And so Paul says, because of this, you are not to let sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 12. Because you have been delivered, because God has made it possible, therefore, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You used to be slaves, but you are no longer slaves. Therefore, do not let sin dominate you. Now you say, but now how has God made it possible for me to pursue holiness? Well, first of all, of course, he has delivered us from this reign of sin. Secondly, he has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to work this out in our lives. In the 8th chapter of Romans, in verse 13, Paul says, But through the Spirit, through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, you put to death the sinful deeds of the body. It is by his Spirit which he has given us, and God has made possible the pursuit of holiness by giving us his Spirit. Secondly, he has given us his Word, which the Bible says is the sword of the Spirit. In the next two Sunday nights, we're going to be talking more about the use of the Word of God in the pursuit of holiness. And then he has given us access to his grace. The writer of the Hebrews said, We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God doesn't expect us to do this on our own. He expects us to come to him and find grace to help in time of need. I was thinking this afternoon, how can I illustrate this? How can I bring it down where you and I can understand it? And this thought came to my mind. Suppose that you and I had been slaves back before the, uh, the Civil War. And someone comes to us and says, now you are free. You no longer have to obey your old slave master. Now he's going to try to intimidate you. He's going to try to dominate you. He's going to try to make you think you are not free. But you are free. Now you can stand up to him. You can say, no, I'm not going to serve you anymore. But this someone says, now I'm going to do more than that. It's not enough that you are free. 
But I'm going to take you over here and set you up on a hundred-acre farm of nice, lush farmland. Not only that, I'm going to give you a bank account, not a line of credit where you can draw on it and go into debt, but an actual positive bank account so that you can buy all of the supplies, all the seed, all the implements that you need to farm this land. And not only that, I'm going to be with you so that every time you have a question, you can turn to me and say, what do I do? And I will encourage you. But you must do the farming. I have made it possible. I have released you from slavery. I have set you up. I have given you everything you need to be a successful farmer. But you must do the farming. And this is what God has said to us. God has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. For this very reason, make every effort to pursue holiness, to live that life of godliness which God has provided. Now tonight I've sought to lay the foundation that God has made it possible. The next two Sunday nights we're going to talk about the how. Next Sunday night, some of the problems that we encounter, obstacles in the way of holiness, and what to do about those obstacles. And then the third Sunday night, our responsibility to walk in holiness what that responsibility actually is, and how we carry it out.